Good day to everyone here and those who are at home. Um, as Andrew said, my name is Tim. And yes, I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's. Um, I'm really honored to have the privilege of sharing God's word with you. Um, so let's just go straight to the text that we have today. It will be in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Um, we'll be walking through it together. And it'll be helpful if you have your Bibles open to you with you uh, as we go through it. The title of my sermon today, you can follow the outline, uh, is Facing Hardship in God's Strength. Um, there is an outline in the handout, but essentially there'll be three parts. The first part is uh, covering verses 1 to 6 in troubled times. And the second part, covering verses 7 to 20, is we seek God. And the third and last part is we remember his grace, covering verses 21 to 31. And when you put all that together, you get the, the idea of uh, the, the, talk, the sermon today, which is in troubled times, we seek God and remember his grace. Have you ever been in a situation where it's out of the frying pan and into the fire, where you think that you got saved from a predicament, only to find things get much, much worse? Well, for David and his men, in today's passage, that's exactly where they find themselves in. Now, what happened previously? If you recall in uh, 1 Samuel 29, in our text last week, we saw how David and his men were saved from an impossible situation. What was it? Well, they were allied with Akish, a Philistine king, and that the Philistines were gathered for war at a place called Aphek against the Israelites. This meant that David and his men were going to war against their own people. And they were either going to be forced to fight their own men, or fight the Philistines around them, or run away. And neither of these options, um, all of them, all these options are detrimental to God's plan to have David the king of Israel, isn't it? So we saw last week how God intervened to the suspicion of the other Philistine commanders, right? And they said uh, they, 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 um, that they were suspicious of David and his men. So David and his men were forced to return home to Ziklag. And Ziklag was a city given to David by Akish. But we see, if Afek was the frying pan, three days later, when David and his men arrive home at Ziklag, they fall into the fire. And here's where we begin in our first section, 1a, in trouble times when trouble strikes. They find Ziglag to their horror, burned to the ground. Apparently, we are told, while they were away, a marauding band of Amalekites came and ransacked the city, taking everyone, including their wives and children, away with them. Well, yes, the text tells us that none were killed. But having your loved ones in the hands of godless pagans, to be sold into slavery, or having unimaginable things done to them. Some would argue that's a fate worse than death, isn't it? And honestly, as a father, the fear of my own children getting kidnapped, and I have no idea where they are, what's being done to them. Honestly, um, that's one of my worst fears. And so I can sympathize with David and his men in verse 4. It's no wonder that they cry until they have no more strength to cry. And to make matters worse for David, his men blamed him, some might say rightfully, for putting them in that predicament, right? And they threatened to stone him. What would we do if that were us? Sometimes when we're stuck in such a situation, it's, 
it's normal and I think it's healthy to let our emotions run their course. Yes? Uh, we're human after all. And that's what David and his men did. They, they cried. They, they let it out, right? But I would argue what differentiated David from his men was that when his men were done crying, we see that they were still bitter. They still wanted to stone David. Their anger was not resolved. But what does David do? And we look at section 1b in the second half of verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. To strengthen oneself in the Lord is, is more than just an empty religious phrase, right? It's, it's digging into what one knows to be true about God because one has intimately, personally known that the Lord is their God. It's about not listening to whatever the circumstances might be telling us or whatever the shifting sands of our own emotions may be filling our minds at that moment. And it's intentionally rooting down, digging down into what we know to be true on the foundation of God's word and his truth and on God's past goodness in our own lives. For my own family, a similar situation was when my youngest, Emma, was born. For those of you who don't know, Emma was born with profound hearing loss in both ears. And this meant that without uh, severe intervention with cochlear implants, she won't be able to hear. And we were told that this has um, impact on not just her speech, but on mental development because they need to think with the inner voice and stuff like that, right? So her mental uh, development might be impacted as well. And things got worse because we were not getting straight answers from anyone. Uh, what, what should we be doing? And Emma kept within the first year of her life, had uh, chickenpox, had H1N1, had uh, hand, foot, mouth, had just a slew of diseases. And we just couldn't take, catch a break. And there were times when my wife and I just, just broke down at the stress of it all. But what we found ourselves doing after we've cried or broken down was doubling down on what we know to be true. That God is our Father. That God is Emma's Father that he is in control, that he has a plan, even when we don't know what to do. And that strengthening oneself in the Lord is anchoring oneself to the immutable truths, an immutable truth that for those who love him, God works all things from, for his good, for good, in Romans 8.28. However, strengthening oneself in the Lord doesn't remove the problem. It's just the first step. What do we do next? And we see what David does in section 2a in verse 7. We see that immediately David does what he should have done instead of running to Gath. He seeks the Lord's direction. He inquires of the Lord via the ephod, right? He asks them, should I go after them? You see, David had no idea if he could. It's not like the Amalekites left the calling card or GPS pin, right? We are here, right? The ways to that direction. No, he had no idea, right? And, and they were uh, a marauding band. They, were, they had no fixed um, city or tent that he can go to. There was no guarantee that he would know where they were. But when he received God's answer, go, you will overtake them. David obeyed in faith. So we see that he took 600 of his men and they set off in pursuit. But we read that 200 of his men were too exhausted to carry on. They were left by Besor River. And we'll come back to them later. Yeah? But just a side note here, that today when we seek God, 
we don't need to use an ephod. And, and that ephod was just a, a rough external tool. What do we have? We have God's completed word in the Bible. And we have God's Holy Spirit for those of us who are in Christ dwelling within us. And that these, this is a far more dynamic and intimate tool of God speaking to us directly than David ever had. Only do we read with expectant hearts when we open our Bible? And more importantly, do we have the right expectations as we approach God's word? I understand that for um, some of us, the idea of reading God's word for themselves can be an intimidating task, but that's all the more a good reason to sign up for the Tuesday night training courses that we offer multiple times a year. Yeah? Uh, plug aside. <laughs> what happens next? As they pursue, we read in section 1b, in verse 11, what happens? David finds an Egyptian in the open country and rescues him. Now let's stop for a moment and consider. If we were in David's shoes and we were pursuing um, this band of people upon in our, our lives, uh, of our wives and our children are in their hands and that every moment, every second mattered, would we spend the time to stop and help someone who may be close to death anyway, like we may not be able to save them anyway. I'll be honest and say that I, I can't be honest to say that I, I would help. But we thank God that David did, right? And in so doing, he showed compassion to this poor soul, despite his own need. Because David had no idea who this Egyptian was, right? And as I mentioned uh, earlier, the Amalekites most likely were nomads, right? Um, there was no guarantee that he would find them, right? or even find them in time to stop the, 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 the sell, selling of their wives and children to slavery. And here we find is an Egyptian who was from the very band of Amalekites that David uh, encountered, that was David was seeking, who fell sick three days ago and was so sick that his master abandoned him and was abandoned at an exact spot that will intersect with the path of David and his men. <laughs> Um, you, would, you would agree with me that this is not just coincidence. It's God's leading. Now, what about us? Do we, in the midst of our troubles, become so preoccupied with our problems that we lose sight of the needs of others around us? Would we take care to be trusting in God and asking for His grace to open our eyes so that we don't miss out these opportunities? And who knows? Just like David as we stop and help others, we instead will find God's ver the very means by which God helps us in that moment, right? And indeed, the, the, the Egyptian agrees to lead David. And we see this in uh, section 2C from verse 16. They find the camp. And what are the Amalekites doing? They're celebrating because they have a great spoil, right? They decide to take a moment, stop, and party the night away. And David strikes the next morning. Now, there's good strategy behind this. Possibly, you know, in the light, you, you don't want to avoid, um, you want to avoid killing your own people, right? And also, that the best time to strike would be when they're having a hangover before they had their coffee, you know? You're still disorientated, and that's when David strikes, right? And we see that they have a decisive victory. David and his 400 men over the whole uh, Amalekite uh, army. 
And we know as an army, it's much bigger than David and his men, the number, right? Because the ones that ran away were 400 men. And you don't run away unless a big proportion of your own people have fallen, right? I mean, if 10% of our number fell, I mean, you would still fight, right? right? So we know that it's a much larger foe, but we see that God gave David the victory. And verse 18, we read that David recovers all, all that was lost. And his men say in verse 20, this is David's spoil. Yes, David wins a great victory uh, and wins a great spoil, even more than he had lost to begin with. But I hope that it's obvious, right, that what we've discussed up to this point, that it was God who gave him that victory. And likewise, in our everyday lives, any victory, any resolution of problems, I encourage you to see God's gracious goodness in it. And how we should be thinking about it is further fleshed out in the last section of our message today. In part three, we see in verse 21, we come back to those poor 200 men um, who were left behind at Besor. What happened? In verse 22, there were some wicked and worthless fellows among them who wanted to withhold the spoils. Um, and let's think for a moment. Was it unfair? It's not like they were saying that, no, 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 you can't have your, even your wife and children because you didn't want to go and save them, right? No, they were quite fair. You can have your wife and children, just none of the spoils that we got. But ultimately, this is wicked because they, these, whoever they were, these 400 men, they were viewing these spoils as earned, that they fought for it, that they earned it. But, they, but David, with eyes of faith, saw differently as we, as we explored, that these spoils were only possible because of God's grace. And therefore, David divided the spoils equally among all of them. For us, brothers and sisters, if we give in to the temptation to look around at all of God's goodness for us and view it as if we earned it, not to say that we had no part to play in it, but if we primarily view it as ours, well, what happens is that we will begin to act in an entitled and selfish way to God's blessing. We will, naturally, it will lead to hoarding, to be greedy or even selfish when it comes to God's blessings. Back to what I shared earlier about my daughter, Emma. Another thing that we thank God for um, is that we managed to get the funding for operation and in time, uh, we managed to get it done so that her, her development um, was on par with her age. She's now a regular three-nager, we call it, and she has a superpower to turn off her hearing whenever she, do, she wants to. She'll just take the device off. Yeah, can't scold her anymore. And we're looking back, we see that God has used our situation with Emma because he's brought many other parents who were suffering just like we were, just as lost, just as confused, just as helpless, and they didn't know what to do. And we were able to di direct them to the means that they can get help, um, the right doctors, the right funds, and so on. And we see that for David, the blessing didn't stop there. In verses 26 to 31, in the remaining verses of our text, in all the lists of their cities, right, it reveals to us something that was not told before. What happened? That many of these elders in these towns helped David when he was being pursued by Saul. 
and David saw that their help was from the Lord. And therefore, he did not hold back from sharing the blessings too. Of course, there may have been an ulterior political motive uh, behind it, right? I'm not denying that. But rather, what I want to focus on is that when he tells, this is the spoils of the enemies of the Lord, that he doesn't view it as his, that this is for God's people. And for us, would we take the time now to think about anyone in our lives who has blessed us, maybe even helped us when times were tough, Maybe perhaps even thinking, perhaps a, sh a short appreciation, a, a small message saying that, thank you for encouraging me, uh, encouraging me at so and so a time. You know, a small text can go a long way. Now finally, as we conclude, we have traced the story of David to the conclusion of 1 Samuel. For David, it will be continued in 2 Samuel. But we do not neglect the deeper themes that are being pointed us to David's greater son, God's true and ultimate king, Jesus. In part one, we saw David finding himself in a desperate situation where he strengthened himself in the Lord. And we know likewise that Jesus, before he faced the cross, he knows what it means to be in deep anguish, to, to pray until, until blood was sweating out of his pores before he went to the cross, asking, if possible, remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but yours. That Jesus intimately knows what it means to face hardships in life. That in part two, that David sought to obey the word that he received and he treated the Egyptian with compassion. And likewise, we see Jesus modeling compassion to desperate and broken people and that he obeyed God perfectly to death, even death on a cross, so that he could die, taking our place, saving us in our sin, taking on our shame and our death. And finally, in verse three, we see that David, with God's help, won a great decisive victory and graciously shares that with all his people. And likewise, Jesus, raised by the Holy Spirit, won a decisive victory over sin and death in his resurrection. And that he shares that to all of us who are in him, life forever with him, in intimacy and joy, unending delight with God. If you're here with us today and you do not yet know the hope of having Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Can I just say that I'm so glad that you're listening in and that you're here with us uh, to hear the truth of God's word, love for you. And yet I love you enough to want you to know that having all of your life's problems solved and yet not to know Jesus is like falling out of the proverbial flying pan and into the fire because our sins and our brokenness prevent us from that blessing of intimacy forever with God. Now, if you're more interested to hear about more about this, um, may I suggest that in the later end announcements you hear for how to uh, reach it or us, uh, either in saymarys.my slash connect, or drop us a connect card, we would love to hear from you. But for the rest of us who do know what it means to trust in Jesus, I want to remind us that God, we have a God who entered into our suffering in Jesus, and that we have a God who is intimately with us in the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And that all of this, none of us deserve any of it. And that's what grace is about. So for those of us who've known the sweetness of this personal relationship with God, let us not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather to be keenly using the grace that God has given us to bless one another in Christ. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unchanging grace and goodness shown to your servant David and likewise shown to us through Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you that we can stand confidently on your word, no matter how life may seem difficult and confusing. Keep us from being so overwhelmed in our own situation that we ignore what you are doing in our lives and in others as well. Help us, O oh Lord, to always be strengthening ourselves in you and help us to deepen our intimacy with you and help us to always be sharing your grace to others. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.